here I am standing, working, doing my work at Kinko's, minding my own business, and this guy from the palace comes and wants me to make like a zillion copies of this. Do you know what it says? Here, let me read it to you. By order of the king, on the 13th day of the month of Adar, the elimination of all people with Jewish blood will be enforced by any and all means possible throughout the kingdom. You are hereby deputized for this purpose of this purge. Those executing the order are authorized to take possessions of any of the material goods and wealth of each Jewish person or family they kill. This accumulation of wealth will be tax-free. Happy hunting, and may the odds ever be in your favor. (laughs) It sounds like a plot for a sick movie, but it's real. Uh, As we speak, these bulletins are being sent out into all of the king's providences. Each one will have this posted, and all the people can see it, so that they can be ready for the day. I don't know why the king just didn't use a fax or an email. He could have used Google Translate, but he probably wanted his official seal on all of them. Anyway, why would the king do this? Well, the guy that brought this in said it was really Haman, King Xerxes' new high and second in command. He's kind of power hungry, I think. He walks around with his nose up in the air like he's better than everybody else. And the king even ordered all of his servants to kneel or bow down every time he comes in or out of the king's gates. I wonder whose idea that was. Well, like the King Stuart told me there was this guy. I think his name was Mordecai. And Mordecai just would never bow down. And all the other servants were going, they were getting going crazy, you know. And so one day they asked him, why don't you bow down? And he said it was because he was a Jew. And they went and told Haman. Well, I don't think Haman even knew Mordecai wasn't bowing down to him. But when he found out, yikes, was he furious. And you could just see the hate every time he looked at Mordecai. Well, then he found out that Mordecai was a Jew. And he decided that why release all of his fury on one guy when he could eliminate all of the Jews in the kingdom? That's some serious hatred. So the next time he was with King Xerxes, he let the king know about this odd set of people that were scattered in his kingdom and how they didn't fit in, they didn't belong, and they didn't obey the king's laws. And then like some hero, he made the king an offer. He said that if the king would give his permission to have these people eliminated, Haman would pay for it himself. $12.5 billion. Talk about putting your money where your mouth is. All this hatred because one man wouldn't bow down? Well, we all know the king doesn't like disobedience. Remember Vashti? So the king told him, never mind your money, handed him his signet ring and said, go do as you wish with these people. And that's what Haman did. And that's how I got involved. Everybody here is freaking out. And I heard from the steward that the king and Haman are sitting back having a drink. 
Why, we'll all, we're all reeling from this news. I know I am. Oh, I didn't tell you my name. I'm Leah Leibowitz. Where's God in all this? Hey, good morning. We're in the middle, right in the middle of this series from the book of Esther that, that we've called Veiled. We've tried to communicate this whole concept of Veiled through the process because God's name isn't mentioned in the book of Esther at all. And yet God is really the central character in everything that happens through the book. You just have to kind of look through the veil in order to see him and to see what he's, what he's been doing. Um, in order to make the story of Esther make sense... In order to make the story of your life make sense, there's some things that you've got to understand. The first is this, that God is sovereign. He has ultimate power, and nothing happens in the world. Nothing happens ever without either, at, either at his direction or without his permission. God's in charge of it all. You have to understand as well that God is working even when we can't see him. Even when he's in the shadows, even when he's uh, working upstream, even when he's working between the lines of the pages of the, uh, in the Bible, uh, when he's working in the white space that's there, uh, God is working. It's 486 B.C. Uh, Xerxes comes to power in Persia. Uh, if you remember, he, uh, he throws this big party. His, uh, he calls for his wife to come in and show how beautiful she is. Uh, she doesn't come. He gets rid of her and says, you know what, I'm not, not going to have her be queen anymore. Um, he goes off to war and uh, fights with the Greeks, comes back, and he doesn't have a queen, so he launches this big nationwide party to find a new queen. He chooses this girl, this young, beautiful girl whose name is Esther. She's beautiful, but she doesn't tell anybody that she's Jewish. She doesn't tell the king. She doesn't tell any of the people in the palace. Uh, so she's there kind of um, secretly in, in terms of her heritage. That's going to be important uh, next week in the, in the uh, message a little bit later. Um, Esther is this girl that's been orphaned as a child. And she's raised by her uncle. Her uncle takes her in and raises her as his own daughter. Um, and and uh, she grows up into this beautiful woman. In the contest, she's taken from her uncle. She's made, uh, and, uh, made into the, the queen. She becomes the queen of the country. Mordecai works for the king. Esther is uh, the queen of the country. Uh, if you remember, last week as Doug talked... Um, Mordecai is, is at his position at, at the city gates working for the king, and uh, he discovers there, he hears two guys talking, and they say that they're going to kill Xerxes. They don't like Xerxes. They're going to kill him. Mordecai tells Esther. Esther tells the king. The king launches an investigation and uh, determines that this is a real threat. These guys really are going to kill him, and so he has them executed. And uh, it's, it's really, the way he has them executed is kind of gruesome. Um, in in uh, a lot of the translations, it says that they're they were hanged, which is bad enough. But in reality, what the, what the original language points to is that they were impaled. So there was this, um, this uh, 
tree-sized log sharpened to a point, and um, it, yeah, it makes you happy thoughts, right? Um, so, uh, so they're dead. Mordecai doesn't get any recognition. He doesn't get any medals. He doesn't get any money, nothing, except that his name goes into a book that the king writes that describes what happens day after day after day. So that leads us to Esther chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles, take them out. Be sure and go there. Uh, we're going to work through Esther chapter 3 this morning. If you've got the app, um, go ahead and open it up, and uh, we can read together. Um, let me, let, me, uh, let me pause just for a second. I did this first service and it was lots of fun. Um, the, in, this cha- in this chapter, it's going to describe a holiday that the Jews have that's called um, Purim. Uh, it comes from casting lot, casting the pure. We're going to talk about that. That's a holiday that Jews still um, celebrate today. And when they do, they read the entire book of Esther. There's a guy in this who's the bad guy. Uh, his name is Haman. And when Jews read this, everybody boos anytime Haman's name is mentioned. As a matter of fact, they actually have, um, you know, the New Year's Eve things that you spin around, they go, wah, 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 that they hand those out. And every time they read it, they make the noise and everybody boos. So if you want to do that, you're allowed. All right, here we go. Chapter three, verse one. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman. That's a pretty weak boo. Okay, all right. Give me, give me more boo. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than, than that of all the other nobles. The king makes Haman second in command. We don't know why. It, yeah, thanks. <laughs> You'll do that a lot because I'm going to. He's woven in here a, a ton. Um, he's a rich guy. We find out later in the chapter that he's got all kinds of wealth. Um, maybe we, we don't know why the king puts him there, but um, as you read through the book of Esther, one of the things that you find about Xerxes is that he is fairly easily manipulated by the people that are his advisors. And uh, it may be that Haman is just a uh, yeah. It may be that Haman is just a player that he he is so politically connected and astute that he's doing he's doing all the scheming so that he can land in this position number two, uh, verse two. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded him concerning this. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate, these are the guys that are the peers of Mordecai. They also work for the king. They hang out where Mordecai hangs out. Um, Ask Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it. To see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. So we learn that Mordecai says Mordecai is not going to bow down to Haman, and that he is Jewish, and and he says that's the reason why um, Jews uh, to, in this culture to bow down was it was to more than just show honor. It was really kind of an act of worship. Um, some of the Jewish commentators actually say that um, the clothes that Haman wore the um, had woven into, thank you so much, uh, had woven into the, the skirts of his clothes uh, Persian idols. And so for him to bow down was to, for Mordecai to bow down was to bow down to idols, something that God said never, never do. So Mordecai says he's a Jew, he's not going to bow down to Haman. Uh, verse 5, when Haman, uh, yeah, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a... 
he looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Haman is so infuriated with the, with the reality that Mordecai won't bow down that he wants to not just make a, an example of Mordecai, he wants to kill every single Jew in the kingdom. And the kingdom's huge. Do you understand that what we're talking about is genocide? It's, it's the picture of genocide. Ethnic cleansing. Murder of an entire nation. Why would Haman want to do that? You know, uh, one of the cool things about Scripture is when you dive into Scripture and you really begin to read it and really begin to study it, some stuff crops up that you think, oh, that's really interesting. We're going to take a rabbit trail right here for a second um, to, to do that about Haman and about why he may have been at odds, so uh, hated the, the Jews. Um, chapter 3, verse 1, when it first introduces Haman, it says, After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Agagite, say that, that's a fun word. Agagite, yeah. Um, Haman is a descendant of this king of the Amalekites named Agag. Uh, this is uh, hundreds of years earlier, um, and, and Haman is a descendant of this king. Um, the story of Agag is one from Scripture, and it's one that, um, unless you're really attuned to, to uh, history and names in the Bible, you probably wouldn't have any idea who Agag is. Agag is, although the story that surrounds Agag is a, is a pretty famous story in the Old Testament. Let me, let me just kind of lay it out for you. Back in uh, 1 Samuel 15... Um, Saul is king of Israel. He's king of the nation of Israel. Samuel is the prophet that God uses to, to speak to Saul. And um, through Samuel, God says to Saul, go wipe out the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a people group that when the nation of Israel had come into the promised land, um, they had asked for favor from the Amalekites to, to come into their land. And the Amalekites said, no, you're not coming through our space. And um, so as a result of that, God says, you know what, wipe out all of the Amalekites. Um, and so and when God tells Saul to do that, he says, kill everything. Kill men, women, children. Kill all the animals, all the cattle, all the sheep, all the uh, camels. Kill everything. Don't take any of the plunder. Burn it all up. Lay them waste. And so, um, and so Saul goes to battle, and they, and they uh, wipe out most of the Amalekites. He comes back into contact with uh, Samuel, and Samuel says, uh, how'd it go? And Saul says, oh, it was great. Woohoo! God won. We did, every, we did just what God said. And Samuel says, really, you did just what God said? And Saul says, yeah, we did just what God said. And Samuel says, then why do I hear cows? Why do I hear sheep? And Saul says, well... We, we actually let some of the animals live because, because we can sacrifice them to God. He's making it up as he goes. He's, uh, and, and, and Samuel says, really? And he says, yeah, we did just what God said. We let Agag, the king, live too. And some of the people stole some of the stuff that was really good. But, and we kept the really good animals alive. But we killed everything else. We did just what God said. And, and Samuel says, Saul, you've, you've got no clue what you've done. You've disobeyed. And, and in 1 Samuel 15, this is the passage that's familiar to many of you. Uh, Samuel says this to Saul. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. 
For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Let me just put that in terms for us today. You know what? God asks for us to obey what he commands us to do. It doesn't matter how much we go to church, how much good stuff we do, how religious we are. We need to obey what God calls us to do. That's what Samuel says to Saul. And as a result of that, the kingdom is ripped from Saul. Um, uh, Samuel says to Saul that your descendants are not going to ascend to the throne. It's, you're done. Um, and then Samuel goes and kills Agai, Agag. Haman is a descendant of Agag. He's a, a Malachite uh, because, the, because Saul didn't wipe everybody out. Now, if you turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 9, if you're kind of following along, it says this, at verse 1. There was a Benjaminite, a man of standing whose name was Kish. Kish had a son named Saul. Saul is a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Back to Esther, Esther chapter 2, verse 5. There was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish. Those, those are not his dad, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather. Those are important people in his genealogy. Mordecai is from the same tribe as Saul. He's, he's got a descendant way back when, Kish, Saul's dad. So the, so the hatred that exists between Haman and Mordecai is deep-rooted stuff. It's been there for hundreds of years. Um, th- there's a reason that Mordecai hates the Jews. Verse 7. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman... Haman's getting better in this story, I guess. Uh, To select a day and month. And the lot fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. The lot was something, the poor uh, is the the Hebrew word. It's uh, a way that they used to foretell the future. It's a way that they um, used to determine what they were going to do. It's kind of like if you were to say right now, okay, if uh, you take out a coin and say, if it's heads, we're going to Flapjack. If it's tails, we're going to Bob Evans. If it stands on its end, we're going home for lunch. All right? Um, You know, that, that kind of thing. That's what the poor was. And so Haman rolls the dice, essentially, and says, hey, it comes up, uh, boxcars, double sixes, 12, oh, the 12th month, that would be perfect. We're going we're gonna to wipe out the Jews in the 12th month of the year, Adar. Verse 8, then Haman said to King Xerxes, thank you, uh, there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in the, all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people. They don't obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy him, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Haman wants the Jews dead so badly that he's willing to fund the process. Um, we don't know what a talent is. It's a, it's a measurement of both volume and weight at this point in time. Um, Wikipedia says a talent of silver right now would be worth $1.25 million, one talent. 10,000 talents, $12.5 billion in our current currency is what Haman says. I'm willing to pay to, to wipe out the Jews. He is all in on this. Why does he offer so much money? One, because he's so full of hate. And two, probably because the king needs it. The king has spent a ton in his war with the Greeks, and it's going to cost a bunch for all of those copies to go through the entire nation. It's 127 provinces that go from India to Egypt. It's a massive space, and it's going to cost. 
Haman says, I'm willing to pay for it. I got skin in the game. I want the Jews wiped out. Verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman. I expected you guys down front to be really into the Haman thing, all right? Uh, uh, And gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out the script of each province and in the language of every people, all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of all the various peoples. They were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. Haman convinces Xerxes that this group of people deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth. And you know what's crazy? Xerxes doesn't even ask who they are. He just says, okay. He doesn't ask for the FBI report that shows sedition. He doesn't, he doesn't do any, any sense of independent verification. He just says, Haman, I trust you. Okay, we're going to kill all those people. Um, why did Haman cast the poor? Why did, he, why did he set the state? It's because they believed that the, that the Persian gods would be in the middle of that casting of the lot and that they would determine the best state for that to happen. I think Haman, too, wanted that date to be so far out in advance that every person in the kingdom who was greedy, every person in the kingdom who had any kind of conflict with any Jew, any person who was prone to violence would, would know what that date was and would say, you know what, I'm in, I'm in. Because all they had to do was determine which Jew had the most money in their community, kill them, and take all their stuff. In a day, everything could change, and they needed time to be able to prepare and do that. You know, in 2013, there was a movie called The Purge that came out. I didn't see it. I don't recommend it. Don't go out and rent it and say Rick said that that was okay. All right? But the, but the plot of The Purge, when I saw the previews, I said, that's the story of Esther. Because what happens in The Purge is that the government gives 12 hours and says, in 12 hours, uh, you can do whatever you want. You can kill, you can steal, you can burn stuff. You can do anything you want for those 12 hours. That's what Haman initiated uh, throughout all of Persia. On this particular day, all the Jews get killed. Verse 15. The couriers went out spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat... The king and Haman sat down to drink, and the city of Susa was bewildered. Do you, do you see the picture here? Haman is so, his heart is so hard, and Xerxes is so oblivious that they sit down and have a party, they have a beer, say, yeah, it's good, we're going to wipe those people out. And the whole city is going, what in the world just happened? Because if they can kill the Jews, they can kill my people. The city's a mess. Um, Through this series, we've said, even though God isn't mentioned by name, he is actively involved on each page in the white space of everything that happens, that God was working when the king was drunk and Vashti was banished. 
that God was working when Esther was taken from her home, her home with Mordecai, when she lost her virginity to a pagan king, when she became queen of a pagan country, that God was working when Mordecai saved the king's life and he got nothing in return for it. Today I'm telling you that God was working and God is working when rich and powerful people use their position and their resources for despicable evil. Even though you can't see it right now in chapter 3, God is at work. He hasn't abandoned Esther. He hasn't abandoned Mordecai. And he's not abandoned the Jewish people. Because if God, if God had abandoned them, there would be no Messiah. We would today have no hope because Jesus would never have been born because the Jews were wiped out completely. But God was at work, and we do know that a Messiah, a Savior was born, that Jesus came to earth to take our sins on himself and change our eternal destiny. God's at work even in the midst of this. So what, what can we learn from Esther chapter 3? I, I think there are three, three things that, that I want you to just grab a hold of and hold on to. The first is this. Standing up for what's right is better than going along with what's wrong. Standing up for what's right is better than going along with what's wrong. Mordecai took a stand. He didn't bow down to Haman. He held true to his values. He held true to God's teaching, and he took a stand. He didn't draw lots of attention to himself. You know, he didn't go out and get on the 6 o'clock news. He just, he just did what he was supposed to do. And in doing so, um, it, it caused this furor. And understand that Mordecai, Mordecai took a stand in the midst of peer pressure. Um, adults experience peer pressure, right? Why else do we buy some of the things that we buy that we don't need to impress people that we don't know? Because of peer pressure. Mordecai said, you know what? I'm going to stand for God in this no matter what. The, the question for you today is, are you being called to take a stand for God? Are you being called to take a stand for God? Um, in November, a guy named Mark Whitaker is going to come speak at North Point on November 4th. His story is a pretty incredible story. He was an executive for Archer Daniels Midland. And in 1992, Archer's Dan Archer Daniels Midland was uh, a part of a price-fixing scheme that was worldwide. Uh, it, they fixed the prices of ingredients that are involved in the groceries that we buy. And, um, and they were making billions of dollars a year because of the way that they fixed the prices. Um, uh, Mark Whitaker came home and was telling his wife about the price fixing. And his wife, a woman named Ginger with three young kids from southern Ohio, said to Mark Whitaker, what you're doing is wrong. And you've got to turn them in. If you don't turn them in, I will. And Mark Whitaker says, I knew she was serious. And so for three years, he went undercover at his work and expose this price-fixing scheme that ultimately cost that company, just that company, a half billion dollars in fines and, um, and in judgments against them. Um, it ultimately cost uh, in, in some incredible ways. It resulted in ADM paying those big fines. It, re it resulted in her husband going to jail for nine years. It also resulted in all of us saving money at the grocery store for the last 20 years. It also resulted in her husband, Mark, coming to know Jesus while he was in prison. Was it worth it? 
You've got to come back on November 4th to hear the, the whole story. It's an incredible story. Is God calling you to take a stand at work, at school, in whatever environment you live in? Do you know about things that need to be exposed and you're just kind of going along, not making a difference? Do you know about things that are unethical, illegal? Do you know about abuse that has been hidden and swept under the rug? Uh, We said a couple of weeks ago, when you take a stand, there will be a cost associated with that. But if God is leading you, it's the right thing to do, and he is at work right now. He's been at work upstream to carry you through that process. Second thing is this. The wake of pride, anger, and bitterness is destruction. You know, the boats are getting ready to go in the water. You speed the boat up. There's this wake that comes out behind it. The wake of pride, anger, and bitterness is destruction. Haman, I think, was consumed by this long-term bitterness and anger over what had happened to his people from the Jews. And it ate at him. Haman was, was consumed with this sense of pride. When he walked in, he wanted everybody to say, oh, there's Haman. Every, everybody bowed down. He was consumed by that pride. And the end result of that was that an entire people group was going to be wiped off the face of the earth. You know, if anybody had a reason to be angry and bitter, it was Esther, right? She'd been orphaned. She'd been taken from her home. She'd been made queen of this country that, uh, um, that was a pagan country. The, the question is, are you harboring bitterness, anger, pride inside. Maybe, maybe it's something recent and, you, and, and it's just eating at you. Maybe it's something that has been there for a long, long time. And here in the story of Esther, you think, oh man, I've got I to do something with that. Here, here's the deal. If that's there in your life, there's only one thing to do and that's to give it back to God to release that anger, that bitterness, to release that pride. Leviticus 19 says, Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 12 says, Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends. Leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Last, the, the last truth that, that's in, this, uh, in, in Esther chapter 3, I think that's there for us, is really the heart of everything today. It's this. God is working when power is used for evil. God is working when power is used for evil. Do, do we need to stand up When our leaders act in an evil way, we absolutely do, and God will work through that process. If we're not able to stand up against evil leaders, will God still be at work in that process? Absolutely. He never abandons us. He never leaves us. Even when he's silent, he's working. That's the story of Esther These are hard questions. Was God at work in Nazi Germany when 6 million Jews were exterminated? When European countries, one by one, were being annihilated by the Germans? Was God at work in Rome 
When followers of Jesus were rounded up and, and put in sheepskin, dripped in blood, and put in the middle of the Colosseum, and lions, wild animals, released to tear them to shreds. Is God at work right now in the Middle East where ISIS is capturing Christians and beheading them, raping young women and girls? The question is not, is God causing those things to happen? Because the answer to that is no. God doesn't cause those things. That's not his nature. The question is, is God working in those horrible circumstances? And the answer is yes. Think about the incredible power that it takes to be working in the middle of tremendous evil. God has the power to do that. In 1940, under the leadership of Adolf Hitler, the German army invaded the Netherlands, the country of Holland. In the city of Harlem, there was a family by the name of Ten Boom, a husband and his wife, his daughters, um, who, in, who from 1942 to 1944 built a room inside their house and hid Jews from the Gestapo in their home. In February of 1944, uh, an informant turned them into the Gestapo and the family was taken from their home while there were Jews hiding in the hidden room. They didn't come out for several days. They stayed protected. And the Ten Booms were taken off, put on the trains and taken to the concentration camps. Um, The the family, the, the mom and dad, were both killed in the concentration camps. And two of the daughters, Corey and her sister Betsy, um, went from camp to camp. And in, in Corrie ten Boom's book, um, The Hiding Place, she tells a terrific story about the presence of evil and how God works in that. She talks about being transferred to Dormitory 28 at the Ravensbrück concentration camp. These are her words. We lay back, struggling against the nausea that swept over us from the reeking straw. Suddenly, I sat up, striking my head on the cross slats above. Something had pinched my leg. Fleas, I cried. Betsy, this place is swarming with fleas. Here, and and here's another one, I wailed. Betsy, how can we live in such a place? Show us. Show us how. It was said so matter-of-factly that it took me a second to realize she was praying. More and more, the distinction between prayer and the rest of life seemed to be vanishing for Betsy. Corey, she said excitedly, He's given us the answer. Before we ask, as he always does, it's in the Bible this morning. Where was it? Read that part again. I glanced down the long, dim aisle to make sure no guard was in sight. And then I drew the Bible from its pouch. It was in 1 Thessalonians, I said. In the feeble light, I turned the pages. Here it is. Comfort the frightened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. It seemed expressly written for Ravensbrook. Go on, said Betsy. That wasn't all. Oh, yes. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's it, Corey. That's the answer. That's God's answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do. We can start right now to thank God for every single thing about this new barracks. I stared at her, then around me at the dark, foul-aired room. Such as, I said, 
such as being assigned here together. I bit my lip. Oh, yes, Lord Jesus. Such as what you're holding in your hands. I look down at the Bible. Yes, thank you, dear Lord, that there was no inspection when we entered here. Thank you for all these women here in this room who will meet you in these pages. Yes, said Betsy, thank you for the very crowding here. Since we're packed so close, that many more will hear. She looked at me expectantly. Corey, she prodded. Oh, all right. Thank you for the jammed, crammed, stuffed, packed, suffocating crowds. Thank you, Betsy went on serenely, for the fleas. and for The fleas, that was too much. Betsy, there's no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. Give thanks in all circumstances, she quoted. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are a part of this place where God has put us. And so we stood between tiers of bunks and gave thanks for fleas. But this time, I was sure Betsy was wrong. Back at the barracks, we formed a line to receive our ladle of turnip soup in the center room. Then, as quickly as we could for the press of people, Betsy and I made our way to the rear of the dormitory room where we held our worship service. Around our own platform area, there was not enough light to read the Bible, but, but back here, a small light bulb cast a wan yellow circle on the wall, and here, an ever larger group of women gathered. They were services like no others, these times in Barracks 28. At first, Betsy and I called these meetings with great timidity. But as night after night went by and no guard ever came near us, we grew bolder. So many now wanted to join us that we held a second service after the evening roll call. There on the Lagerstrasse, we were under rigid surveillance. It was the same in the center, in the center room of the barracks. Half a dozen guards or camp police were always present. Yet in the large dormitory room, there was almost no supervision at all. We didn't understand it. One evening, I got back to the barracks late from a wood-gathering foray outside the walls. A light snow lay on the ground, and it was hard to find the sticks and twigs with which a small stove was kept going in each room. Betsy was waiting for me, as always, so that we could wait through the food line together. Her eyes were twinkling. You're looking extraordinarily pleased with yourself, I told her. You know... We've never found out why we had so much freedom in the big room, she said. I found out. That afternoon, she said, there'd been confusion in her knitting group about sock sizes and they'd asked the supervisor to come and settle the dispute. But she wouldn't. She wouldn't step through the door and neither would the guards. And you know why? Betsy couldn't keep the triumph from her voice. Because of the fleas. That's what she said. The place is crawling with fleas. My mind rushed back to our first hour in this place. I remembered Betsy's bowed head, remembered her thanks to God for creatures I could see no use for. In the midst of a concentration camp, in a dormitory filled with fleas, in a place where prisoners were being systematically executed, taken to the gas chambers, God was working no matter what the circumstances, no matter how much evil exists in your life, no matter how big the mess is, God is working. Let's pray. Lord, this is, this is such a hard truth for us. Because we tend to 
We tend to connect your blessing with good stuff in our lives. We tend to connect the fact that you're working with an absence of conflict, with a free ride through the stuff of life. God, I thank you that you remind us over and over through your word that you are at work in us, through us, through circumstances to accomplish your will. And that we can trust that no matter what, you're there. You're going before us. You're going behind us. You're surrounding us. Help us, God, to trust you. Help our trust to grow. God, I ask that you would help us individually and collectively as a church to be people who take a stand for what's right, who don't give in to what's wrong. God, I know that there are people this morning who are wrestling because they know something that needs to be exposed and they know that there's going to be a price. God, give them courage and boldness and fill them with your spirit to take that step. God, I I ask that, again, that you would be with us individually, collectively. I, I know, God, there are people that struggle with anger and bitterness and pride that it's there, that it's been there for a long time, and, and you've brought it up as we read the scripture this morning. God, help them to release it to you. God, fill, fill that, that void that comes when they, when they give it to you. Fill, fill that void with your, with your presence, with your Holy Spirit. God, help us to be confident that you're at work no matter what our circumstances, no matter how big the mess is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.